Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning eager to get into your word. Hungry, Father, to hear the truth. Desiring, Lord, that you would speak to us and move in our hearts. The Holy Spirit would be mighty and powerful. That we would feel conviction for our sins and the humble honesty to admit that. And yet in our honesty and humility, we would say that you are a good God that loves us, that forgives us of our sins, that is merciful toward us, and we have found life in Jesus. Father, make us those who look to Jesus, know him, and find our lives and our identities in him. We ask, Lord, that through the word today, you would make that work. Lord, we pray your power upon the preaching today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 9. I am so thrilled to get back to the Gospel of Mark. It was about mid-December when we stopped from here, and we made it halfway through the book and finished up chapter 8, and then we took a break, and then it was Christmas, and then we've done a few things through the first of 2017, but I'm ready to get back. I think I think life is better for me when we're preaching straight through a book of the Bible, and I think it's better for you all too, and I hope that you're going to benefit from that. So, unless something else comes up, we're going to ride this thing out through Mark, and we are starting chapter 9 today, and it's going to take us a while, but we'll get finished. I don't intend to just preach one verse at a time, but today will be just one verse, Mark chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll keep going. I want to kind of whet your appetite a little bit, though, that if you would look ahead in the Gospel of Mark, you see we have some really, really good stuff coming up, and and hopefully you'll be looking forward to that. A couple things that I know you're interested in. Chapter 10 begins with Jesus' teaching on divorce. I hope you won't skip that day. I hope you'll be here ready to hear that. And then also, uh, next week, we have the Transfiguration, which I'm going to talk a lot about. Chapter 11, the Triumphal Entry. Then we keep going, and we will soon get to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's going to be good. And I hope you're committed to being here to hear the Word of God preached. Today we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, we encourage you to use the Pew Bible there. It'll be page 928 in the Pew Bible. Page 928. In our passage today, it's a difficult one to understand in the sense of why is it here? And I'm going to do my best to try to put it together. I thought that if I connected verse 1 with the transfiguration, which is uh, 2 through 13, then we would have missed out all the significance of verse 1. So we're going to look at verse 1 by itself and, and try to connect it to everything else. You know, there's a tendency among people for us to quit. It's pretty common. I'm sure you've quit something before and felt bad about it, even if it was a a board game of like Monopoly that was taking too long, and so you quit and said, you know, I just don't want to keep playing. And you kind of wonder, well, what was the point of us starting, or what's the point of playing, or that wasn't fun, or whatever. And while board games are not that important, there are other things in life that we find ourselves quitting as well. And, and then we look back and say, you know, maybe I should have stuck with it. I remember a quote I heard a couple years ago that I preached from a homecoming preacher here where he said, you know, the grass isn't greener on the other side. Or the, gra- the grass is often not greener on the other side. He said the grass is green where you water it. You ever heard that before? 
But the reason why we end up quit, quitting something and going to something else is because we feel that the grass is greener on the other side. And if I can get away from this, then it'll be better there. And then we get there, and it's often not better. And we look back and think, not any better. And yet we, we have a tendency to quit or, or give up or, or, or rather not keep going. And when does that happen? It happens when something gets hard or when something's not going well. We have a saying in our culture that says when, uh, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? But more often than not, the tough don't get going, and the t- going gets tough, and people quit more often than not. Now, it is an awesome success story when we do hear that the tough get going along with it, but those are few and far between. And not only is this true in our lives, whether it's with our families or our jobs or our commitments to certain things, this is also an issue that we have inside of Christianity. Somewhat puzzling and baffling when you think that Christianity is only through the power of God working inside of us, and and if God places you in his hand, nothing can snatch you out of his hand, and the perseverance of the saints lets us know that if we started this thing, then we will finish this thing, and Philippians 1.6 tells us that God, who began a good work in us, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. One thing is for sure, those who are in Christ cannot be separated from the love of God. Amen. With all of that good doctrinal stuff, we know there are a lot of quitters in Christianity. And man, that's, that's hard. That's hard on your relationships. That's hard on your soul. And let me tell you, as a pastor, that's the hardest, that's the hardest thing. Knowing people, loving people, building relationships with people, investing in people, only to see that they aren't about it anymore. The Bible addresses this. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, you have this great verse. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we do not give up. The Bible speaks to the tendency of the church, of the the churches of Galatia, to just quit. For so long I've been trying to do well or trying to do good and just seems like I can't do it anymore. It's not worth it. To another church, the one in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 3.13, he says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary is really another way of saying don't quit. Don't stop. Don't give up. Do not grow weary. Or what about that great discussion in Hebrews 12, which I talked about Wednesday night, where he is talking about how God is a loving father that treats us like sons and disciplines us. And he says this, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, that's Jesus, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. The Bible knows that life is hard and there is an opportunity in you to to say, you know what, I'm just not so sure anymore. I'm not so sure if I need to stick to the Word of God. It's not working out for me. I'm not so sure if I want to continue going to church. I don't know if it's making my life any better. I don't know if it's worth it. And the Bible would warn against that. In that great hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written in the 1700s by Robert Robinson, He says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God 
I love. A song that we sing often that declares, I feel inside of me like I may quit this thing. I don't know how much longer I can do it. And perhaps you're here today feeling that way or perhaps you struggle with the difficulty of the call to follow Jesus. I want us to look today at Mark chapter 9 verse 1 and see that Jesus says something right here where he says it that you and I would be encouraged. You know what encouraged means, right? Quite literally, it's something that gives you courage. Quite literally, it is something that gives you courage to not grow weary, to not quit. Oh, that you would be encouraged today and oh, that the Word of God would shoot, literally inject courage into you that although you feel like you don't want to keep going, the very truth and power of God inside of you would make you courageous. Jesus' words today are meant to encourage the 12 disciples in the midst of all that he is teaching them prior to all that they are about to experience. Read with me at Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's read that one verse again. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What a statement. I want you to know that all three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three have this very verse right here as the verse before the transfiguration. I don't want to get too far ahead, but if you look in your Bible at verse 2, chapter 9, verse 2, it says that Jesus goes up a mountain and he takes Peter, James, and John with them and he is transfigured before them and they see and they behold all of the glory of God in the person of Christ a scene like one had never seen before the exalted the glorified Jesus Christ seen by those three in the most unbelievable way possible listen the very sight that you and I will see one day they saw then That's the transfiguration. That's what I'll preach on next Sunday, and I hope that you'll be back for that. But the very verse that comes before it is this 9-1, and one starts asking, why does he say that there? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels have that. The passage that Austin read in our New Testament reading when he was up here was that passage. That was from Matthew, and Luke has it too. Why does he say that there? Jesus is speaking to them that they're going to die. But he's saying that you're going to experience something before you die. And why does he say that? Why would he? Well, let's look back up all the way to chapter 8, verse 27. And I want you to see that this verse 9-1 seems to come at the very, very middle, at the the, the dividing line of this book. If you know anything about the Gospel of Mark, you know there's 16 chapters. So we're right there in the middle. I didn't really plan that. It would have been cool if I'd have planned it to kind of split it right here before the Christmas, New Year break. I didn't plan that. It just so happened to work out that way. But we're right here in the middle of the book. We've finished eight chapters, and we have eight chapters to go. And this statement of 9-1 comes about. Commentator James Edwards says, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, all the way to 9-1, what we're about to read 
is a continental divide between the first and second halves of Mark's gospel. It unites, listen to me, Christology, which would be studying Jesus, and discipleship, which would be understanding what it means to follow him, in a unique and symbiotic relationship. It teaches, listen to this, this is the part that matters to you, it teaches that a proper confession of Jesus involves a new understanding of discipleship. Here's why I quoted that to you all. If you're here today and you want to believe in Christ, that means there's some sort of way you ought to start living. If you're here today and you want to be a Christian, a Christ follower in 2017, then Jesus has got a whole lot for you to hear about how you ought to start walking and talking and living and behaving. That's what he's saying. And he puts this verse, 9-1, right here in the midst of this passage so that you and I cannot separate the two. To know and understand Jesus is to call us to live a certain way. To set our eyes upon Jesus for who he is is to say, I'm going to follow him. We must link those two together. We are in trouble when you confess Christ and say you believe things about Christ, but you don't live according to those ways. We are hypocritical. We are wrong. We are a problem to the kingdom. We are a problem to the gospel. We're a problem to the glory of God in the world. So look with me at chapter 8, verse 27, and take in all this that we studied back in December. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples this great question, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, and then he comes with the question of all questions. They look you in the eye, man to man, person to person. But who do you say that I am? Man, that would be tough to have that question from Jesus. And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You remember from Matthew's account, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the true confession, the good confession, the awesome answer that we got from Peter here. And in verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Verse 31, look what happens here. Follow along. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and and be killed. Does everybody see that? Listen, you cannot have, listen to me, you cannot have Jesus. You cannot have Jesus if you will not have the teaching of Jesus from a verse like 831 where Jesus is telling them, telling them that he will suffer and that he will die, he will be killed by people, and that he would rise again. You cannot have Jesus if you don't want that. I saw a social media message yesterday, which for the record, it'd be wise for you to stay off social media for a while, but I saw a social media uh, message yesterday that said, let me remind everybody of the politics of Jesus. When you start speaking for Jesus on his political views, buddy, you are towing the line of being very careful. It didn't mention sin, and it didn't mention his death. May I warn you to never, ever speak about Jesus if you will not include the context of him being crucified for sin. We cannot know God. We cannot represent God. 
we cannot love like God and we cannot be loved by God if we do not understand sin killed Jesus. When the going got tough and Jesus had to toe the line with the disciples, when he looked them in the eye and said, but who do you guys say that I am? Their answer was, you're the Savior. That's what Christ means, Messiah, Savior. You're the Savior. And Jesus immediately in verse 31 says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, rise again. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. Don't be confused about it. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me remind you yet again that a focus, an other focus, a worldly focus, that a focus on something other than God is to resemble Satan. Yesterday and all the activities going on in our country. I saw a lady with great zeal and passion standing at the podium on national news wearing a shirt emblazoned all over it that said, I love abortion. You may have seen that shirt. I love abortion. I love abortion. I love abortion. I love abortion. And a leader, a female leader, in our country, posted it and put, a famous female leader put, this is demonic. And I don't know if you know, but January the 22nd is Sanctity of Life Sunday. That's today. And you guys who are here a lot know me well enough to know that I want to be so careful with these things. We are so for women. We are so for women's rights women being treated equally. And it is possible to do that and at the same time proclaim that abortion is wrong. And I say that with such a heavy heart because I know, I know that many, many people near to me, near to you all have had abortions. And I'm not mad at you. I'm not even saying that against you. I'm saying it for the opportunity of every other baby moving forward. Some of my dearest people in my life have had abortions, and they are still just as dear to me. I'm not saying that against the person that's had one. I'm saying that a baby is a life, and we cannot and should not take it. It's one thing to say women's rights, and I'm all for it. It's another thing to wear a shirt that says, I love abortion. In our passage here today, Peter, the leader of the twelve, says, Jesus, don't, don't talk about that. Nobody wants to hear you talking about suffering and being killed. We don't want to hear that. Jesus turns to his main man, his boy, if you will, his best friend, if Jesus had them, 
the rock that he will build his church upon. Peter, Simon Peter, the only guy that ever walked on water with Jesus. Jesus turns to him and says, Satan, you better back up. Back up, Satan. Get behind me. For, for all the love that God has and the mercy that he shows, his truth and his holiness and his goodness and his love will not be compromised. It will not. And in this passage, he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And Peter's problem was that he was not looking at things from God's perspective. His problem was that he was looking at things from man's perspective. He didn't understand. Verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me. Now here's the great declaration because there are so many that want to come after him. And Jesus qualifies it. There is no open and broad path to following Jesus. It is a qualified path that under the words of Jesus is a very strict and very narrow and very difficult path to following Jesus. Let's not hide from that. Let's not skirt around that. Let's not lie about it. There is a broad and easy way to life. And the words of Jesus said, the broad and easy way that everybody likes and affirms is the one that leads you straight to hell, Jesus says. And many, many, many find it. Jesus says here, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, that's hard. That's a high calling. That's the cost of discipleship, and it's expensive, but he keeps going. Verse 35, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Very key and integral and foundational to being a Christian is that you desire to lose your life now. You don't desire to stick out your chest. You don't desire to pump your rights. You don't desire to be affirmed and understood and right all the time now. That is not what we're about. We're about losing our lives now. We're okay with being wrong. We're okay with being misunderstood. We're okay with people thinking that we are demonic or judgmental or bigoted or whatever. We're okay with that because that's what it looks like to lose your life in allegiance with Jesus. Let me remind you, they hated him. They beat him. They spit in his face. They plucked his beard and they cheered, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That's what they did to our God that's how they did it and Jesus said if you want to come with me lose your life that's what he says and then he throws a button there he says but if you don't if you don't want to do that you can't handle it that's too much the tough's getting going and you're ready to grow weary and bow. if you don't well, then here's what you do just be all about saving face right now just be all about making you look good right now or being the right one right now or, or jumping sides or jumping ship or being okay with everybody or please these people when you're talking to them or please these people when you're talking to them. Or matter of fact, don't ever really say what you believe or what you're about or what your convictions are or whatever. If you want to do that, you can and save your life now. Just know this, he says, you've lost it. And I'm scared when I hear Jesus say that. That a saving of our lives now, for whatever reason, is ultimately a losing of our lives. And when you hear that heavy truth, he comes back with a question and says, verse 36, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Jesus asks you as you're considering, do I want to lose it so I can save it, or do I want to save it so I can lose it later? Jesus asks you, what's it worth to you? What means the most? What, what do you value? He's wanting you to, 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 to dig deep inside of yourself and say, no, I do value God. I know that life's about God. I know that God made me. I know that God loves me. I know that God's way is the best way. I know that my way is wrong. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have difficulty. I know that I'm not right in and of myself. He wants you to say, it does not profit my soul to try to promote me. It does not profit my soul to be about the things that God's not about. What does it profit a man to be that way? If he forfeits his soul, Jesus asks. And in verse 37, he says, What can a man give in return for his soul? Obviously nothing. Verse 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words. Does everybody hear that? There's a big push these days to separate Jesus and his words. You can't, Jesus won't let you do that. Now, you can with your friends, and you can at your workplace, and you certainly can on social media separate your, your commitment to Jesus from his words, but he won't let you. In this big, heavy, heavy passage that we're reading, he won't let you. He says, whoever's ashamed of me and my words. If you want Jesus, you've got to take his words. Whoever's ashamed of my words... In the context of this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus just brought out a new subject that he's coming. That he's coming. Which means one of these days he's going to show up. Which means one of these days he's going to come back and cause every single person to answer the big why. Why didn't you? Why didn't you? Because I'm here now and it's no more acting like I'm not looking or I'm not seeing or I'm not involved. I'm here now and he's going to, he's going to ask why. He's coming, he says. And the whole ashamed of him, not ashamed of him will be met with, will be dealt with when he comes. And that's why it's so important for the church to be a church that believes in the second coming that believes in the Advent, and the first Advent, and the second Advent, Christmas, which we just came out of, of, came out of us when he came the first time, and the second coming when he comes back will be the second Advent of which we wait. And that's what he's referring to. Then we get to chapter 9, verse 1, what we're looking at today. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Robert Stein says, This verse appears to say that some of Jesus' hearers would live to see in the near future the coming of the kingdom of God in power that is associated with the second coming of the Son of Man. It seems to say that they're going to see that. However, the ultimate consummation of the kingdom and glorious appearing of the Son of Man to judge the world did not occur in their lifetime. So either Jesus was wrong or he's not referring to the second coming. What is the coming that he's talking about? Notice here that in this passage, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is coming with power. The kingdom of God is coming with power. And I want to stop here for just a second and just make that statement clear until you hear it. The kingdom of God is coming with power. God's power is coming in a way that nobody will be able to resist. 
I want to remind you that God in many, many cases throughout the history of the world has spoken strongly to those who oppose Him and God has never been beaten by them. God can make even the strongest of strong bow down. The kingdom of God is coming with power. And the Bible warns us that the one that they mocked and killed is coming back conquering one day. The very king will come back. I want to remind you that the Bible teaches us that when he does come back, every knee will bow. And I know it's common to think today that every knee bowing and every tongue confessing is not going to happen. And I'm never going to, he's never going to make me. I know it's common to mock him, but I, I just want to warn all of us that he tells us that one day we're going to bow down to him. And you must know that and believe that. And take it a step further, you must be ready for that. And today I ask you, whatever direction your life is going, that you would change it today and that you would bow your life to Him now. So that you're bowing your life to Him now, right now in 2017, would just be a getting ready for when He comes that you would gladly, joyfully, in worship, bow down to Him. You can't wait for Him to come so that you could bow down to Him because you're already bowed down to Him now. Hebrews says that when He comes back the second time, He will come back to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And those who are not eagerly waiting for him will not be saved. May that not be you. May you hear the warning today. But it appears here in this passage that Jesus says that all of that coming of the kingdom will come before they die, before they taste death. Let me remind you also that Jesus knows when we're going to die. Did you know that? Jesus knows when we're going to die. You remember when the Bible said that all of our days are numbered. God has those planned out. And while we certainly all wish that it would be a good long life, we're not promised tomorrow. And the Bible picks up on that, that it would be foolish for you to make a lot of plans for tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You're not promised tomorrow. There must be a good healthy balance of understanding today, investing in the day, and not looking too far ahead. And yet realizing that maybe you will get tomorrow. But I want to ask you right now in all sincerity, if you die, are you ready to meet God? When you die, are you ready to meet God? Do you understand that when you die, you will be with the kingdom of God and its power, and you will either be welcomed into it or not? Are you ready for that? Jesus is warning them. Jesus is warning them here. It's odd to think that we're in the, middle, or we're in the beginning of a new year, 2017. But the reality is, is, our church will probably have some funerals this year, won't we? Your families will probably have some funerals this year. Not sure what funerals we're going to go to. Don't know whose it will be, but we'll go to some. Would you be ready? One of the things I ask at every funeral is, what comfort do we have in death? That's a hard question to ask. What comfort is there in death? That's a hard question to ask, a hard question to answer. But I want to tell you this. May it be that your family and your church has all the comfort in the world knowing that you know the kingdom of God and its power and you gladly, joyfully bow down trusting in God and his love for you through the forgiveness of sins. May that be who you are. Jesus understands death. But what's he talking about? Because that's the very issue here. What's he talking about? What's he mean when he says that they will not die before the kingdom of God comes? 
A lot of different views on this. A lot of people with a lot of different understanding. Here's what I think. I think it's referring to the transfiguration that's about to happen climaxed in the glory of Jesus in the resurrection. Some people may say, well, you can't do that. You can't say it's the resurrection and the transfiguration, but I think so. I think the transfiguration is a picture of the glorified Jesus, and the resurrection is a picture of the glorified Jesus. It is truly the glorified Jesus. Some people say it's the resurrection. Some people say it's the transfiguration. I think it's both going together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three, have this exact verse immediately before the transfiguration. I have to think that the transfiguration has something to do with this statement. These three guys that are on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, are going to see the transfiguration before they die. I think that's what it's referring to. Now let me ask you, why is he saying that to them? For their encouragement. For their encouragement. You remember how heavy 27 to 31 was? Remember how worked up I was getting about 10 minutes ago in my preaching, going through 27 to 31? You remember how uncomfortable you got with me just reading those verses? You remember how anxious you get just hearing Jesus make bold statements? As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the call to follow Christ, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That statement alone is hard to hear. Truly, the cost of following Jesus is hard to hear. But that's the call. And we ought not make it lighter or easy. For when Jesus says that the path that's wide and open and easy leads to hell, he also said that the path that's narrow and hard leads to life. But he said that it's good and it's worth it. He says that few find it. Let us be reminded here today of the great encouragement there is from God, even though the call to follow Jesus may be a heavy and hard one. He's just said to them, what's it going to profit a man? He said, if you want to follow me, come. Take, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. He said, if you want to save your life, you better lose it. He just said all of that. And the disciples are now worried. And remember John 6.66, John 6.66 tells us that when Jesus made bold statements like that, that many at that point turned back and said, we no longer want to follow you. Look it up, John 6.66. When Jesus says things like that, many said, not anymore. If you're going to tell me I can't live this way, I don't want to follow you. If you're going to tell me church has to be like that, then I'm not going to follow you. If you're going to tell me I can't do this and I can't do that, then I don't want to follow you. And that's the way the world has been forever. Jesus has just spoken the high, expensive cost of being a Christian again. And while they're there counting that cost, perhaps growing weary, Jesus reminds them, you're going to see my glory even before you die. What encouragement. And if you think that statement's encouraging, just wait till next week when Peter, James, and John find themselves on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and Christ in all of his glory. What an encouragement. I want to ask you here today if you know where to find encouragement. I want to ask you here today if when you're weary and ready to quit, if you don't have encouragement and so you just stay spinning your wheels and life's nothing but a battle uphill, you're, you're always frustrated, you're always snapping at people, you're, 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 you're always at wit's end, you seem to say, I just can't take any more. Well, you need to learn where to find encouragement. Have you looked to the words of Jesus? Does Jesus encourage you? Do the promises of God, do the hope of his future, does his love for you and his commitment, does it encourage you? 
Let me show you one thing that I think is absolutely encouraging. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he begins this statement like Jesus often does with, truly I say to you. You know that Jesus says that a lot. Sometimes it's the double, truly, truly. What he's saying here is he's sounding like the Old Testament prophets when they would say, thus says the Lord, or, or thus saith the Lord in the King James Version. And you remember that the Old Testament says that all the time. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. God is speaking, and you remember that. And this is Jesus saying that. Listen to this quote. The significance of verse 1 is signaled by a solemn preface characteristic of Jesus. Quote, I tell you the truth. The Old Testament prophets customarily preface their sayings with, Thus says the Lord, as a guarantee of God Almighty Yahweh's authority. But Jesus, listen, but Jesus assumes that authority himself, earnestly pronouncing, I tell you the truth. According to Jesus, to hear the Old Testament prophets say, Thus says the Lord, is the same as hearing Jesus Christ say, I tell you the truth. For Jesus is God Almighty. But let me make it even more practical and even more encouraging. Truly is just another way of saying amen. And you've never met anybody in their life that began the statement with amen. Amen is something that we say when we hear something good, right? When somebody says something truthful, amen, brother. Like every time I'm watching a basketball game and they say something good about North Carolina, I say Amen. You say amen after you hear something good if you're not the standard of truth. But listen to me. When you're God talking, you can say amen before you say it. And here Jesus says, amen. Some of y'all are going to see my glory before you even die. Amen. See, we say amen to what Jesus says. Jesus says amen before he says what he says. Truly I say to you, and they were encouraged. And perhaps you know this to be the story of your life. That when you are struggling and growing weary and wondering about giving up, you're met with the great proof and promises and truth of God and you are encouraged. Does Jesus encourage you? James Edwards goes on to say that when believers confess who Jesus is, they also and inevitably confess what they must become. The Son of Man calls those who would know him to follow him. Instead of trying to follow him without knowing him, may we reverse it and understand, I, I know him, I've, I've dug into the word of God, I've listened to the preacher preach, I'm hearing the word of God and its truth, and because I'm knowing Jesus, I'm now wanting to follow him. May that be the case for us. And may we not grow weary this passage, 9-1, is stuck again right in the middle. The transfiguration of Jesus being glorified on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah showing up, and the disciples getting the ultra boost of he is who he says he is. Right after, they just heard him say what he says. And may that be where you're at. May you live in the tension of, man, that Bible's got some strong stuff. Man, God's Word is strong. There's some times where God's Word don't play around. There's some times where the Word of God gets serious, and you live right there in the tension. And as you're weighing it, you remember that He says, I'll take you through it.
I'll be with you. I'm with you always. I won't let you down. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll fight for you. In, in me, you are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And I could go on and on and on with all these promises. And so you live in the tension of being a Christian in the world today and all of the animosity that goes against it. And you grow weary. But then you constantly come back to the word of God in Jesus and you are in encouraged. Do you know Jesus? Are you a Christian? Are you a real one? Do you believe this word? Does it fill you up? Do you feel courageous right now because of who Jesus is and what he says? Earlier I mentioned Robert Robinson who wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing in 1758. Robert Robinson was a 17-year-old, listen to me, a teenager like many of you all. And his life was like many of you all as he ran with the wrong crowd. And one day they had all gotten drunk together and decided to show up at church, but they showed up at the, at the Reformed Methodist, have you ever heard such a thing, George Whitfield's church. And in 1758, no, 1752. Robert Robinson with his friends drunk showed up at church on Sunday morning drunk. And George Whitfield preached. And he preached, who's going to save you from the wrath to come? Who's going to make you ready for the coming of Jesus if you're not ready? And Robert Robinson, in his drunkenness, was convicted of his sins and for three years lived in the conviction of being a sinner against God, not living for God's glory, knowing that he's living in disobedience, not being right and not being ready. And at the age of 20, Robert Robinson believed, listen to me, he believed in Jesus. He turned from his sins and he was saved. Three years into his salvation, Robert Robinson, recalling that and looking at how his life now was as a 23-year-old, wrote, Come thou fount of every blessing. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Verse 2. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, listen to this, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Verse 3, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Listen to this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's a good hymn, isn't it? I don't know if you know Robert Robinson's story, but it was just a few years later when he had left the faith. He had wandered like he had feared he would. Makes me rethink whether we should even sing it, right? He had given up on Jesus and he had gone to a church that's Unitarian, believes that 
uh, there's only one God and not Jesus. There's only one God in, in, in himself without the Trinity, and that everybody will be saved, no, no matter what, that there is no wrath and there is no judgment and sin is not bad. He had become that. He had fallen away from the truth of the Word of God. And one day, listen to this, as story would tell it, he was traveling through town, loaded up on a stagecoach to catch a ride, and the lady beside him was humming. Come thou fount of every blessing. She turned to him and she said, Young man, you ever heard that song? He started crying. She said, Do you know that song? He kept crying. She said, Young man, you, you must know it, I think. He said, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn years ago. And I'd give a thousand worlds if I could go back to feeling it again. Church, this call to follow Jesus is a serious one. It's heavy, I know. It's awkward in 2017 to be a Christian in the public's eye. But it's the Word of God. It's the love of our Savior. It's the only place forgiveness is found. And it's the only place love, joy, and peace and happiness are found. Here today, in the midst of all the weariness that comes from being a Christian, would you be encouraged? Would you look to the Word of God and believe? And be reminded that Jesus is in control of our deaths. And Jesus is in control of us seeing His glory. And he is mighty to save. And would you trust in him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel of Mark and us being back in it. Lord, we pray here at Mark chapter 9, verse 1, that we would see in the midst of the hard and high callings of Scripture that there is encouragement. Oh, Father, may we embrace Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen.